Welcome to Mondo and Friends presented by Verizon. My name is Mondo Fresco and today we are joined by a legend. Oh, please. <laughs> Bro, you've been in the game and I've been following you for a while. You have been working and you deserve that, man. Look, actor, director, producer, entrepreneur, change maker, because you are indeed wow. creating change. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin Baldoni. Here you go. Cheers, brother. I'm Mondo's friend. Cheers. Here we yes, go. You are. Cheers. It Cheers. is official. T, you're drinking, you're drinking water? I am. All right. By the way, it was so funny. My wife, uh, my wife the other day, she started making fun of me, and she, re she realized that I drink, dude, I drink coffee and tea like this. Like, have you ever, how do you, how do you hold your, your mug? Like Is it like, yes, yeah, so oh, you your, your arms. Thumb. No, it's, no it's, my, it's my elbow out. Oh, I just noticed know. that I kind of do this. Right, you have your elbow and, out. And then it was so funny when she said that. She's like, why do you do that? And I realized, anytime I've ever seen myself on screen drinking, I've always like, something about that looks funny. You look awkward, Justin. And I realized it's because I have this thing where like my elbow's out. So I'm super self-conscious of it now. So there we yeah, go. Cheers. Yeah, man, cheers. <laughs> I, I just thought it, the, the, the couch was a little high. No, that's just literally, this is what I do. I don't know why. That's cool, man. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm super <laughs> excited that, uh, that you shared that story, for one. Oh, please. Um, and uh, I'm super excited that you're here, man. We all are. And we've been, be here, we've been man. talking for, for a while. Uh, we met many years ago. Yeah, that's what you just told me. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, Venice, California. Venice, Venice Beach, baby. Yeah, man. This was um, right before Jane the Virgin was going to to kick off, mm -hmm. and we were there celebrating with with Gina, Gina Rodriguez, shout out to Gina. What up? Gina? Uh, and and Gina kept introducing you to everyone as her <laughs> baby daddy. I know she did that for <laughs> she did that for so long. It's my baby daddy, huh? Yeah, I was like. Wait, and then I was at, like, wait, what? what? Oh, it's, he, part, it's part of the show. Oh, oh, okay, got it, got it. But, like, I was like, is should, yeah. something I, I should know? Should we, should, we, should we chat? You didn't know the actual storyline yet. Not yet. Yeah. No, her, no one did. Maybe that's one of the secrets. In Gina's mind, everybody already knew the show. Right. Right? So she was just like, this is my baby daddy. Nice. Uh, it's so funny you brought that up, though, because yesterday, for the first time in probably seven years, like I told you, I... I was meditating and I randomly had this, I was like transported back to that weird, you know, moment where it was just, I didn't know all you guys and it was yeah. Gina and I was we on Venice Beach and I just thought about it for the first time yesterday in seven years and then you brought it up today. So I was like, we must have been in each other's fields. Like maybe yeah. you were getting ready for this and, you know, energy, as you know, doesn't have, it's not bound by time or space. So I must have picked up on that, man. I love that. I love that, man. Great times. I... I want to talk about a lot of things. I want to talk about the the journey that is your your life career wise, and mm. I know you're also very personal with what you talk about your books, your podcast. Talk about whatever you want, man. I wanna I wanna lead with when was that that moment when you decided that you wanted to pursue a career in entertainment? What's that that first in entertainment memory? So what's coming up right now is um, you know, I grew up in a small town in Oregon. So I, first half of my life was I was raised in Santa Monica. Um, the second half, uh, I was 10, we moved to Oregon. And I remember at 16, we had these things called like, they were like it was like a junior project, a sophomore project. 
and you had to uh, do a report about a job you wanted to have one day and you had to go and have experience in that job. And there's a lot of things about high school that I just didn't vibe with and didn't agree with and you know, test taking as an example. And I was a very kinesthetic and immersive learner. I didn't learn the way that maybe a lot of other kids did, but this was something that I could sink my teeth into. And so I remember thinking like, well, what do I want to do with my life? I was a soccer player, like that, that was everything to me. Um, I loved music, and in this small town, you know, of a couple hundred thousand people, there wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. There was a news station, and there was a radio station. And I just felt drawn to entertainment in some capacity. Um, and so I applied at the radio station. I went to the radio station, it was a top 40 station called Beat 93 in Medford, Oregon, playing all of today's best music. I love uh, that. And I interviewed the program director, and he offered me a job doing overnights. So at 16, I became a DJ. Wow. For six months, I was the new guy. That was my name. Um, and I did it every Friday and Saturday night for six months. And then I was okay, so he bumped me up. I started doing middays on the weekends. And then um, uh, when I was 17, Kiss FM came in. Clear Channel bought up another radio station, and they kind of recruited me. And I went, and I had my own show in high school. Wow. So I was on, on the radio in high school. But the moment that came to me when you asked me that question was I was on the radio at 2 in the morning the night Aaliyah died. Wow. In a plane crash. And I was 16. And I remember I got the news. And I was on the radio live. And I stopped the music. Nobody, I mean, not many people were listening. My boss wasn't listening then. And I prayed for her. Wow. And... That was just what I felt called to do. I stopped everything and I just prayed for her and her soul. And then I started playing Aaliyah music. And there was something about that. I get the chills even thinking about that moment where I was able to, as a young boy, (laughs) um, recognize that in that moment I had an opportunity to allow God to work through me. To pray for someone who I loved and respected and whose music we listened to. Um, and, and maybe in some capacity that was helpful. Maybe somebody who was just hearing the news joined me in prayer, whatever it was, it was just, there was something about it that I, that like just stayed in me. It was like, it was like an ignition turned on. Um, and as a Baha'i grew up in the Baha'i faith and as a Baha'i, we're told that every human being, regardless of what they do or how they do it, has a unique capacity to transform the world around them and that every human being must engage in some sort of occupation or trade, and that trade should be a form of service to humanity. And that was my first job. In that moment, I was like, oh, wait, this is, this is how I can serve. Yeah. Um, and I think I, I think I never looked back. I thought I was going to be a real DJ. Like, I moved to L.A. at one point. I was like, do I go to, am I going to be a DJ for my whole life? Like, what am I going to do? My name was Justin Case. <laughs> Just in case was your Just radio name. Just in case was my radio name. Just in case. Just in case, because his mother wasn't sure. Like, <laughs> like it was all. I remember I had, I had one of those stingers that was like, "Just in case, the perfect face for radio." You know, wow. it was like all that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I got the bug back then, a long time ago. And uh, when I decided to become an actor when I was twenty, the the decision was always, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to find a way to be of service. 
or I'm going to do something else. Right. Where do you think that came from for you that... My faith. Your faith. Yeah, 100% my faith. And was that something you grew up with, with within yeah. your, your, your so family? At, at 15, I became a Baha'i. Um, in the Baha'i faith, the basic belief is that we are all one, that God is one, that uh, from the beginning of time, there's only been one religion. It's called progressive revelation. That religion um, just looks different, and it's come at different times and different places based on our capacity as human beings to understand the message. Right? There's one school system. There's, one, there's math, right? But math looks different based on how old you are. Mm. And that's the basic belief of the Baha'i faith, that we're all one, one human family. We are the fruits of one tree and the leaves of one branch, that we're here to be of service. Um, and, uh, and when that is your upbringing, then you frame everything in that way. So it's not just about money or success right. or jobs. It's like, okay, what does that allow me to do? Um, and I've been... You know, I've had moments where I've forgotten, where I've just been like, oh, it's about me. <laughs> and then boom, something happens. And I'm grateful for those moments because God presses the reset button. And then you have to kind of remember. So, yeah, it definitely, it definitely came from faith for me. Do you remember that, that first moment when that clicked for you? What part? What, what part? The, the, you said that it brought you back to... The reset button, you mean? Reset, like when yeah. I, <laughs> um, so it's not about you. Yeah, you know, when I was 20, when I, when I first started having some success in the business, I was 21, and I, I got my first TV series on a show called Everwood. So this was 17 years ago. And I remember I was young, I was naive, I had been acting for a year, I had no clue what I was doing. I was a terrible actor. Um, and, but I was really like in this moment of, I was just like super into my faith and I was there and I was just like praying a lot and I was like on fire. I would have been like, if I was a, if I was a born again Christian, I would have been one of the dudes in the front, like waving his hands and being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I love that. the Holy Spirit. Like that, that yeah. was me at that time in my life when I was 21. And then I got the show and I just remember being like, okay, this is my moment. Like I'm going to be of service. And I was in a lot of ways, but it quickly became about me. Yeah quickly became about me. I started making some money and I found myself holding on to it and, and, and also spending it. And there was, a, I hadn't done any personal work. I hadn't done any of this work. Um, and the, I remember that year, it was, I was on the show for one year living in Utah, kind of being away from family and friends. And I just kind of got sucked and sucked farther away from what my mission and what my purpose was that year. Um, and I believe God tests us with success. For sure. I believe that's a huge, he tests us with success, with money, with all kinds of things. And all success and money and fame do is just show what's really there, the stuff you haven't dealt with yet. It's just a magnifying glass, right? And I hadn't done any of the work. And then uh, you start getting recognized and like taking pictures and then with girls and you're like, ooh, this feels really good and yeah. all this stuff. And as quickly as it came, it went away. I was written off the show. The show ended that year. Um, and I couldn't get a job. And I had to go back into being like, why, why did I want to do this in the first place? What was, my, what was my why? What was my reason? And I'm so grateful for that period of time because that's when I found that my real love was being behind the camera, was filmmaking. 
That's when I refound my service. Hey, Mondo here. Right now, you deserve the network more people rely on. That's why Verizon is introducing Welcome Unlimited for just $30 per line per month with four lines and auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Their best price unlimited plan ever. $30 per month for the whole familia. The network you want, the price you love. Switch to Verizon today. Visit verizon.com slash Mondo. In the Baha'i faith, we're told, Baha'u'llah says, we must try to see the end in the beginning. So when, when suffering comes, when tragedy comes, uh, it's about looking for the end, for the why, while you're in it. Because mm. then it alleviates so much of the suffering. And I was really grateful for that period of time because I was able to, to go, oh, this is my reset. I forgot. I totally forgot. What would you say is as the biggest turning point in, in, in your career. Biggest turning point? Where you felt like, I'm here, I made it, I feel successful mm. at this moment in my life. I don't think anybody ever has that moment. Maybe they do. I think the world is set up, our system, Hollywood is set up in such a way where you never really get to have that moment. Mm. Um, because you've never really made it. You might have superficial versions of that moment, but the way that the system is set up is that you're only as good as your next thing. So you might be focused on a win, but there's a part, there's always been a part of me that wasn't allowed to celebrate it because it's not quite enough. It's not there, right? It's the same system that I think keeps all of us down, that keeps us men from feeling like we're enough because it's not just about Mondo and Friends, the show. It's about season three and all the things that are up on that wall over there and all the sponsors that you need and all that. You got to find, you got to keep hustling, you got to keep grinding, you got to keep going, got to keep going. Yep. You can't just be in the moment. Mm. Um, but there were many versions of that. I had moments where, you know, I think when I got cast on Jane the Virgin and we were nominated for a Golden Globe and I was getting invited to these, I was like, oh wow, this is what it feels like. But in the same breath, we weren't invited to the Emmys, right? So you're invited to one party, but not another, and you focus on the one you're not invited to. Mm. Because that's the way Hollywood is set up. You never reach the top, because when you're at the top, there's somebody right behind you trying to take it from you. That's how I view like kind of the patriarchy, right? That's the system. Yeah. It's this, this system that kind of keeps us all back and keeps us all feeling unfulfilled and like we're not worthy. So. I've had moments, but what I've learned recently is uh, I'm feeling more enough now doing less, not, not at my peak of fame, not like, you know, on a TV show than I ever have. Mm. Because I'm also more present than I've ever been with the people that I love the most. That's my legacy, beautiful. my family. Um, so these are the moments that I've been feeling the most enough. It didn't come from like, oh, I made it. Like, because I don't think I ever did. I don't know if I ever will. Um, making it, I think, is, is getting to a place where you can actually see that that stuff doesn't actually matter. That's deep. I don't know. Did you ever feel like, you know what, maybe this, this is it for me? All the time. Yeah. All the time. For two reasons. 
One is I inherently have imposter syndrome in everything that I do. Um, I never went to school. I never got a formal education. I went to a year and a half of college, Long Beach State. What's up, 49ers? Hey. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't study any of the things that I'm doing now. Interesting. I didn't study business. I didn't learn how to raise money and start a, a, a financing studio. I didn't study acting. I definitely didn't go to film school and study directing. So inherently, I feel not enough in so many of the things that I do. And when you feel not enough, it's very easy to cop out and be like, this isn't for me. So that's on one side of it. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is I woke up one day after a few years of therapy and I realized that so much of what I was doing was a combination of a deep desire to be of service, yes, but also of a trauma response to my life. Mm. Of, of not feeling as a child seen or loved or valued by the people around me. Not necessarily my parents, but sometimes my parents. And the best way to fix that is fame, is doing things that make people love you and see you. It's walking down the street and have somebody notice you or want to take a picture of you or with you. Yeah. It's having somebody respect you because you've made it, right? Like right. your previous question. It's having a nice car so people stop and look at you. It's putting yourself in positions of power to earn the respect that you didn't have, mm. right? And, uh, and when I realized that, I then was able to, to look objectively at my life and say like, well, how much of what I'm doing am I doing because I love it? And how much of what I'm doing am I doing because young little Justin needs it to feel like he's enough? So when you take those two things, I know this is a very deep, complex answer, when you take imposter syndrome and then you take the realization that so much of what you're doing is because you can't not do it because you need to feel seen. Mm. Even if there is... A, 50% of it is pure and it is God working through me and this is my unique gift. Even if that's the case, I looked at it and I said, well, I guess I would be okay if I didn't do all of this. Yeah. So then I asked myself, well, what do I love? Which is not something that many people in my position or our business do. What do I love? I love cooking. I could open a restaurant. Yeah. And when you can detach from the chains of success and from capitalism and and patriarchal society when you can detach and you can release yourself of those chains and when you can look at that and be like, well, what do I want? That's freedom. And so I, I dreamt and I went down this rabbit hole with my wife and I'm like, I could totally open a restaurant. Yeah. I love sauces. I love flavors. I love cooking. I love creating. It's the same part of my brain that I channel when I'm making a movie, right? Coming up with something that's going to like, and it's not even that I love eating so much as I love watching people eat my food. Yeah. Like I love watching people make the movies or I love watching people watch my movies. Right. I love the journey of making food. I love the journey of making movies. It was all the same. And I went, wow, I could do that. Yeah. So if all of this went away. If I wasn't cool enough for Mondo to come on and say, hey, can you come be on my show anymore? If I was forgotten in the industry and no longer relevant, I would be okay. Yeah, that's powerful. That's freedom. I love that. I, I'm I'm a big uh, foodie myself. I love cooking. All right. And, and I and I sort of make the same connection with 
creating, whether you're creating a podcast or you're creating a dish. See, the only thing that I've been learning about myself is when I cook for people, presentation is key. Mm. I love for the plate. I love to plate my food very nicely mm-hmm. for others. My plate is a mess. It's yeah. like just I just threw stuff on. Yeah, that's that's a big realization. And and we I've been going through that, learning more about that in in uh, in therapy. Yeah, and um, it's it's sort of connected to. You know, usually like you do things for others and yeah. sometimes you, you kind of half-ass things for yourself. Well, also, I'm sure your therapist has told you this, but it's also indicative of how you view yourself in relation to others, right? So if you give someone a full plate that's beautiful, but you give yourself a half a plate that's not, that's really how you see yourself at the end of the day. But the second part of that, I think, is a beautiful thing, which is... You want to serve people. Yeah. Right? And so e- it's so easy in therapy to take the one piece of it. Right? Like, oh, wow. So really I have some, I have some low self-worth that I got to work on. I got it. I'm in that. But the other piece of it that we can't forget is that you love to be of service. For sure. And you are lit up. You're lit up when you make somebody that plate and they feel good when you eat it. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And we can forget that in the self-help world. And like the love myself world, we can forget that piece. It's a beautiful thing. I, um, my, what, when I think about making food, the other thing that uh, came to mind when you just said what you said is my nana who taught me how to cook. Um, she made everything with love. And the difference between my nana's cooking and the Italian restaurant down the street's cooking was one ingredient, which isn't found on the menu. It's love. Yep. The same ingredients, but her food tasted wildly different. Yep. Something about Nana's food, something about Abuela's food, right? That is just different. And it's because of the intention of how it's cooked. And that's something that we forget, right? So, so long as you have the intention, which is you want to plate that food and you want it to be beautiful because you're doing it with love. Yeah. That's okay. You can work on yourself. You can work on plating food for yourself later. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to make myself a badass four course meal tonight I'm gonna plate it and I'm gonna enjoy it and I'm not gonna put it on Instagram it's gonna be just for me right 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 then you can give some of that love back to yourself in the same way I love that thanks man Uh, I do that's I'm on the same journey I'm on the same journey I'll make all this food amazing for other people and when I make it for myself it doesn't look half as good why am I doing that yeah yeah that's beautiful cooking is is uh it's it's such a, a beautiful um way to express yourself and 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 to feel the love like you said yeah. you know and it's um, deep in our cultures all of our cultures for sure and and i feel like the italian culture and my family is from mexico yeah food is special so special i want to talk about enough you've said enough enough a few yeah. times during our conversation man enough mm-hmm. undefined by masculinity yeah the first book the first book that that you released and, and you have a sort of like a series of, of Man Enough that we'll go into as well. Talk to me about, about your, your first book. Yeah, Man Enough, um, it was terrifying. I mean, it was really a response. So I did a TED Talk five years ago, um, TED Women, which was uh, terrifying. I tried to get out. It went viral, actually. Crazy viral. 
That's how low the bar is. You know, some like straight white guy talking about power and privilege and masculinity and like it goes everywhere and and you know just shows how few people are talking about it, right? Um, and there's nothing I said on that TED talk that was. I don't want to diminish myself, but there was nothing really like transformative. It was just a challenge to men to embrace the parts of them that are feminine because those are the parts of them that make them human. Right. It wasn't feminizing men. It was just, it's okay to be compassionate and strong. It's okay to be sensitive and strong. It's okay. Um, but then it was through that TED Talk, and I got offered a bunch of book deals and all these things, and I took one, and it took me a long time. My amazing agent, shout out to Johanna Castillo, who pushed me, pushed me, pushed me, and I tried to get out of it so many times. Thank God for <laughs> Latino women <laughs> who, are, uh, who don't give up. Um, resilient. Resilient is one word for sure. Um, incredible. Foresight. Visionary. But um, yeah, she pushed me to do it and I, and I, and I almost didn't. But um, I'm so happy that I did because it was really healing for me. And the purpose of Man Enough was to use my story and to showcase parts of my life um, to show other men that they're not alone. Because it doesn't matter where you're from, what color your skin is, all of us men have been affected in very similar ways. Um, masculinity, machismo, right? Yep. It's, all, it's all the same stuff. It's all built on power. Um, so I, I went in to my past. I, I shared a lot. And a lot of stuff came up for me that I had to heal even after writing the book or while the book was coming out. Wow. Um, and the idea was to undefine masculinity, not to, not to redefine it. Not to say like, okay, this is what it means to be a man. But to throw it all out. Mm. Because it is then the definition of something where anybody who is not included in that definition feels like they're outside of or a part of. Um, and that's where suffering is and exists. Right? What's the worst thing that we could have been called growing up if we weren't doing something that our boys were doing? A girl. Yeah. Or gay. What are those two things? Internalized misogyny, internalized homophobia. Yeah. Those things then became our governing system. We can't be those things. Therefore, we must be this. So we have to kill off parts of ourselves in order to survive. Not feeling emotions, not feeling feelings become self-preservation because they make us a girl or gay. Yeah. But then you think about, well, how the hell are we ever supposed to be in relationship for those of us that are heterosexual with women when we grow up hating them? You can't tell me you like and respect women when you hate the part of yourself that looks like one. Right. If I am sensitive by nature, if I cry, if I'm naturally compassionate or just nice and soft, yeah. those are quote-unquote feminine qualities. And other boys will drown those out of us, yeah. will bully, will beat those out of us. Our fathers can beat those out of us. Man. Right? So how are we ever supposed to be in relationship with the very people that we're told we have to be antagonistic with? So these are all just things that I was thinking about and that have caused me so much suffering over the course of my life. And yet I was noticing that nobody was really talking about it with similar platforms to me. There's been women talking about this forever. Yeah. But nobody that looked like me. Right. Why? Because people that look like me don't have to talk about 
doesn't benefit me to talk about a system that works for me, right? But that's the myth of masculinity. The system is not working for me or you. Right. We think it is. We think we're the benefactors of a system, but in reality, men are suffering today. We are hurting in a lot of ways. And it's really important that we talk about those ways and ways that we are um, contributing to that system and to that pain. I think that's what's happening. So undefining masculinity to make room for anybody who is a man to be a man. Okay, you want to paint your nails? All right, I don't paint my nails, but you're still a dude. Right. Hey, you cry, you're emotional, you're soft, you're sensitive, beautiful. Right. Maybe that's just not me on my own. Maybe I cry in other, in other ways. Maybe I cry privately because that's where I feel safe, but I still cry. That's not for me to judge. You're still a man. Right. Right. You want to wear a dress today? All right, dude. It's not. You're still a man. We're still men. Right. And that's the purpose of undefining masculinity. Do you feel like that change in, in, in normalizing, uh, talking about masculinity and, and toxic masculinity, do you feel like that is, is more prevalent today than it was a couple of years ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, I mean, five years ago when I did the TED Talk, I was already pitching an idea for the shows that I'm doing now and telling, I remember telling various networks, Hey, I think masculinity is going to be the thing. <laughs> they were like, no, yeah, no. Um, I think it's opening up conversations that have to happen because we're hurting. Mm -hmm. How many men athletes have you seen in the last three years come out and say they struggle with mental health? That never has happened in the history sports before right you know we see like you know you see guys talking about stuff that you've never seen men talk about before you see huge stars coming out and sharing things and being vulnerable so people are starting to open up more and more because finally it's becoming or appearing safe to it's never been safe to these were all things that could use be used against us growing up for sure you don't want to ever tell or admit your boys that you're weak if you're a leader of a company and like in your situation it's very hard. You have an idea of what it means to be a leader. So sometimes it can be hard to show that you don't know the answer. Right. Right. But in reality, well, what do we know about leadership? Leaders that admit they don't know the answer are often seen as the most approachable, best, like caring, kind leaders, benevolent leadership. Right. So it's just, we're just rethinking everything right now. And so it's a, it's a very different time to be alive. It's a very different time to be talking about this. And yet at the same time, Men are so hard to reach. You know, one of the things that, that I, I've been following you for a while uh, on, on your, your social platforms, and it's always... Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, man. No, you, you post some awesome stuff, and, and what stood out the most has been that conversation about, about being man enough. Yeah. Right? Because uh, we'll just, just define or un, undefine... Um, is, is is such a such an important conversation to have um i know i think the first conversation that that i saw you post what you were with other fellow actors we had like a dinner conversation yeah, yeah, yeah that was yeah. the first version of the show yeah. and i thought man that's that's brilliant you know because we we need to talk about that more mm. you know uh in in the latino culture machismo yeah is you grow up with it within it you're taught a certain way um and it's 
you know, when you were talking about how being sensitive and crying and, um, dude, that's, that's, I grew up like that. Yeah. I grew up close to my mom as well. I both grew up with both, both parents. Um, very grateful and thankful for that. Yeah. And, um, but my, my mom, I was really close to her. I always say that my mom taught me how to love. Mm. My dad taught me how to work. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I always I feel had. so sorry for your dad in that way, right? Because it's a good thing, but yet he loved you. Right. Right. You know? Sure. You know, recently we had um, a conversation with, with, with my dad. He's been, he's been going through some, some physical um, uh, hardships recently. And never, mm. never in his life up until like this year. And he's been more vulnerable than ever. Yeah. And when I say my dad is the most machista man, man that I've ever met, I'm not lying to you. But yeah. this year, I've seen him. I've seen a whole other side of him. And, and, and it's, it's beautiful. One thing that... And, and, you know, he doesn't know how to express himself either. But he's trying now. Yeah. And, you know, um, growing up, I would always, I till this day, say... Mom, I love you. Dad, I love you when I leave. My siblings are the same. My dad... Never said it back. Never said it back. Yeah. This year, he's been saying it all the time. He beats me to it. I think I told someone, someone, one of the guys here. I was like, all right, Dad, I'll see you. He's like, all right, love you. And I was like, whoa. What is this? I love this. I don't... I, and and um, he had this... Um, we had this conversation. He was in his bed. And um, I went to go say bye. He can't walk right now that great. Mm. Um, he had like a hip surgery thing. So um, he, he was very vulnerable in that moment. And, um, and, and he just looked at me and said, I love you and mm. I'm sorry. Mm. Whoa. I'm sorry for not being able to open up and, and show you how much I love you. Mm. And... You know, granted, he, he's trying. He doesn't have the words, but he said, and he, he starts crying. He says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not a therapist, he said. That was his way of saying that he just doesn't know how to communicate. And I thought that was like the cutest thing. And, and What did that do for you? Oh, man. I mean, I, I, it's something I'll never forget. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you know, when I said my mom taught me how to love, my dad taught me how to work. Um, it's, it's, he grew up with, with that. He grew up believing that he had to work yeah. and not show emotion, um, you yeah. know, touch. That, that was his way of showing love. That was, that was his way of showing. But, you know, it's, it's really nice to, to have him open up now. I, you know, it, it's, there, there's, there's, a, there's a good and bad, right? I wish that would have been the case many years ago, but yeah. like I'm very grateful for, for that mm. moment now. And I know you are very open with. Do so many things. I feel so many things come up. First of all, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I know. You thank are you. so blessed to have that happen. Yeah. To get to hear those words from your dad because so many people don't. But as you were sharing that, I was thinking about so many things like even when you say, uh, I learned to love from my mom. I learned to work from my dad. I think, like, think about all the work your mom put in. Man. Isn't that interesting, right, how we think about that? Like, your mom worked just as hard as your dad. 
right? And then your dad was told, he was sold the myth of masculinity. All the time away from you, he was sacrificing his whole life and working his whole life. And that's how he showed you love. For sure. Right? And yet we learn how to love from our moms and work from our dads. But they're both working. But one gets to be with you and show you love and the other one can't. But he's showing you love being away from you. And the time, and now as a father, I can tell you that there's, there's nothing worse than not being able to be close to your children because you're working. Mm-hmm. And having to say, but I'm doing this for my children or I'm doing this for my family is beautiful. It is a sacrifice that I don't believe we honor enough. While at the same time, I don't believe we honor the work of our mothers because it's work. You put a man in front of a baby and you have him work as, and ask him to do the same thing that the woman is doing, chances are the woman woman's going to kick his ass nine day with that. The man's going to quit. Yeah. Give up. Like the works are the work is different, but it's all just work. Anyway, so I just that was just something that society has just just sold us this mirage. And I and I feel so much empathy for men because millions and hundreds of millions of men are just like your father and my father who were away working and that was how they showed their love. But then when they came home, they were too tired to love us. They were too exhausted or they didn't know how because their fathers never played with them. So they don't know how to play with their kids. It wasn't their fault. So they're doing the best that they could, but they didn't have, as your dad said, the tools of a therapist. Right. Second thing that I find so interesting about your story is that he followed the very typical curve because he doesn't have to prove his masculinity anymore. He can't. It's not his fault. It's been taken from him. So the things that your father, like machismo, is a performance. Mm -hmm. It is a a sheath of armor that you put on every day. And you put it on when you're physically able to put it on. We don't send old people into war. Right. We send the young and the fit, right? The experienced. So long as they can fight, they're men. We'll send them. But what happens to all the soldiers who can't fight anymore? And it's the same thing with masculinity. There's a performance, a necessary performance to survive, to protect, to do all the things that we are told we must do as men that your father had to do. And then there reaches a point in time in every man's age where he's no longer, he's no longer going to win the fight. Yeah. He can't put on the armor anymore. He's not physically able to. So what happens to one's identity when your whole life you're told that this is what it means to be a man. This is your life. This is your identity is man. Machismo, masculinity, provide, protect. Well, what happens when you can't? Are we not valuable anymore to society? Right. Is our worth solely dependent on our productivity? Is that what it means to be a man? Or are we full dynamic human beings? Are we alive and feeling and sensitive and emotional and, and, and capable of loving and nurturing and taking care of just like women? Yeah. Or are we thrown out into pasture when we reach a certain age? So what happens with men? When we reach a certain point, we can't be masculine anymore in the same way. Mm-hmm. And we realize like maybe this wasn't working. So you look at your son and you go, wait a second. I love him. I've never told him. Yeah. Oh, 
I'm so sorry I wasn't there for you. The fact that he was able to do that shows his emotional intelligence and how beautiful that is. But how many men go the other direction? How many men, when society beats them down or they can't prove their masculinity anymore, go a completely different direction? Mm-hmm. How many men take their lives? Yes. Because they don't feel they have value anymore in the world. Because they can't produce, because they can't provide, because they can't protect. This is the danger of what we're doing to men that nobody's talking about. So, God bless your father. And I think about all of the men who can't say that to their sons, despite not being able to have the strength to put on the armor. Yeah, well, thank you, man. Thank you for, for, for sharing that. And um, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing that you're creating change within your own family and outside of your family, of course, through, through your platform. How are you personally breaking those cycles within your own kids? My personally breaking with my kids? Yeah. Oh man, it's so sweet. So I mean, look, first and foremost, I couldn't do any of this work publicly unless I was doing it privately. Um, I'm somebody that has to have synergy, symbiosis in my life, and and it's the personal work that propels this this outward work and. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, I've been on a journey these last three years, healing, 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 and I'll never get there. There's no arrival. There's no, there's no space where you're like, I've made it even in healing. Yeah. Um, but what I can tell you is the best way that I'm breaking any cycle and teaching my children is by modeling, is by trying to actually be the father be the person versus just speaking words to them yeah um an an example is okay i want to i want to make sure that my son knows that it's safe to feel everything anger rage yes of course but sadness loneliness frustration pain physical pain yeah um he's allowed to that's a part of being human and I can tell him that or I can show him which means that I have to work on myself so if I find myself feeling emotional about something and my natural urge is to suppress it because that's what we do as men that's the way society taught us we've had to to be safe I have to flip that switch in my brain and go no 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 no. let it out yeah so I, sh- I point out, Daddy's crying. Daddy, see, Daddy's crying, and I use it almost as a teaching experience so that he sees it's okay. Yeah. Um, we're doing something interesting with my daughter and my son in that, you know, the world's gonna tell my son the definition of what it means to be a boy and then a man, right? Strong, confident, brave, secure, you know, emotionless, all successful, all these things. And the world's gonna tell my daughter a different version. Be kind, sensitive, don't take up too much space, listen, be nurturing, all of these types of things. So at home, we're actively working on doing the opposite. <laughs> so, so just doubling down on the sensitivity, the kindness, the compassionness, the softness for my son. The world's going to do what they're going to do with him. It's my job as a father to build a foundation so he knows that this is his default. This is his 
this is his homeostasis. This is his safe place. This is his basic foundation that he can build whatever he wants on top of it. So if who he is is enough at home, then he can be free to be whoever he wants outside the home. And when the kids tell him not to cry and do all those things, it'll still get to him, but he'll know that he can come home and be that. And he'll know who he is. And the same thing with my daughter. Take up space. Be loud. Mm -mm. Jump off things. Yeah. Take risks. Take physical risks. All the things we don't tell our young girls. Yeah. I, want, I want her to be able to go, go race that boy. Yeah. Kick his ass. <laughs> right? And then also still encouraging those, the softness, the sweetness. Because you can do both. We always hear like girls can do both. Well, so can boys. You can do both. Yeah. You can be a badass. You can go, you want to you go take, you know, MMA, you know, you want to wrestle, you want to you know, do those things, but also be sensitive yeah. and sweet and kind and do the same thing with my daughter. So that's, that's kind of one of the ways we're talking about breaking the cycle and, and um, encouraging the development of like fully formed human beings. It's an experiment. I can't tell you if it's going to work or not. <laughs> I, don't sure, what, sure I don't know working. what the world's going to do, I'm sure. um, but it's been really sweet. It's been really sweet. Oh, it's amazing, man. Speaking of your boy, you have a, a, a new book. Yeah. Boys Will Be Human. Boys Will Be Human. The cover, you have boys crossed out. Yeah. Boys Will Be Boys. This is Boys Will Be Human. Talk to me about that. I actually saw, so I had the title before I had the book. So I saw the title. Um, She's in a meditation or something. I just saw Boys Will Be Boys crossed out and then with human underneath it. And then we, re, and then we kind of like figured out the book after that. Um. And it was more important for me than man enough. Wow. Because man enough, while it was a personal journey, it was something that was going to be bought and read by grown people, mm -hmm. grown men. But by that point, the damage is done. Socialization has set in. We have learned these behaviors, and it's so damn hard to unlearn. You are deprogramming and reprogramming and unlearning and relearning. And it's not like you can just snap your fingers and say, okay, feel the things that you need to feel. It doesn't work that way. I've gone through years of therapy in order to feel, and I'm the person talking about this stuff. I remember an early therapy session and he asked me how I was feeling and I told him how I thought I was feeling. <laughs> and he says to me, no, 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 what are you feeling? And in that moment I realized I didn't know how to feel. I don't know how to feel because I put the armor on every day. And what we don't realize about armor is that it doesn't just protect me from outside attacks. It protects me from actually feeling the things I need to feel yeah. inside. It stops connection. So I've been taking the armor off and boys will be human is a conversation with a young boy, 11 to a hundred who, um, needs to feel safe enough to ask the questions or hear the responses that they are not getting in their everyday life. This is a book that I wish I had growing up. I wrote this book like the older brother that I never had or the friend that I never had who never talked to me about my body changing, who never talked to me about how awkward it was going to be to get like erections like at three in the afternoon when you're sitting in class, like not even thinking about something, how awkward... It was going to be um, to go through puberty yeah, or to feel like you're behind. Right. Um, finding porn for the first time. 
learning about consent. These are things that we don't teach young boys. A good friend of mine has an organization called The Call to Men. They did a national survey. They went around the country and they found that 78% of all high school senior boys didn't know the definition of consent. And we wonder why one in five women <laughs> are survivors of rape. Yeah. One in four of sexual assault. We have to be teaching our young boys these things. And my belief is, is that if we can't be safe spaces for each other as men, if we can't teach our boys to be safe spaces for themselves, our world will never be safe. Women will never be safe. Queer folks and trans folks will never be safe. Yeah. Men will never be safe. Men are not dying by the millions because women are killing them. Women are not sexually assaulting and raping themselves while, of course, there's minorities. Yeah. All of the destruction is being caused by men. So if men are, quote-unquote, the problem, then men are also the solution. Hurt people hurt people. For sure. But healed people can heal people. So the book is to get to these young boys and let them know at that age that who they are as they are is already enough. They don't have to prescribe to the system. They don't have to be all of the things that they're told they have to be. They're already innately enough. Do you have to check in with yourself when you're writing these books and, and, and position yourself in a, in, in, in a kid's perspective, in a teen's perspective? Yeah, it was hard. I, uh, uh, this book was more, it was, it was tricky because, I, I'm, because I'm not that yeah. age anymore, but it was, it was written from this place of the older brother. So the language is still more advanced. It's not a dumbed down kid's book by any means. Okay. It's, if you read it, you'd say, oh, some, I mean, some of the language is, is it, I mean, it's adult. Um, I don't cuss in it at all, of course, but I mean, I'm just, the, the vocabulary, some of the words that I use, it was not, it wasn't dumbed down. It wasn't brought down to an 11 year old's level. It's if anything, I believe that 11, 12, 13, 16 year olds are already trying to feel like adults. Right. That's what they want. And so I speak to them as an equal. I speak to them like I would speak to you and they can arise versus me bringing it down. And I talk about a lot of stuff. I get really honest. It's going to be hard for parents. Um, there's going to be a lot of parents that are going to feel innately protective of their 11-year-olds. But the data is showing that 11-year-olds are watching a lot of porn right now. And if, and if they're watching porn, they can hear what I have to say about it. They can hear what I have to say about the things that have happened to me, my experiences. The world is already getting to them. We just have this illusion, this this ignorance willfully, if you will, because we want to preserve the innocence of our kids that it hasn't yet, but it is. Do you think social media, social media has made it a little more, uh, it allows, you know, boys and girls to, to mature faster? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that and our food and all the chemicals and hormones we're putting in our, our food, but, uh, but no, but yes. I think it's extremely destructive. It's also can be a tool for good, like anything. Right. Any tool for good can be um, used as a weapon, right? Medicine, 
given in the wrong dose is poison. Uh, social media is very tricky. I have a whole section on social media in the book. And my thing with young, young people is not anti-social media. It's understand what social media is. Mm. And there's a whole section where I explain to them that social media, like porn, like anything, um, is about acquiring users. So just like the drug industry, so long as you understand that you are entering into an agreement with somebody who's profiting off of you. You are a user. So use it. Don't be used. Mm. That's kind of the way that I describe social media. Because you're not going to win the war. I'm not going to say don't get on social media. Right. But understand that the highlight reel of all of your friends' lives is not real. That's not real life. <laughs> the party that you're not going to, that everybody's tagged in, does not mean that you're not loved or special. And we see it all. It's all right there for them. Bodies, sex, like, and then it's, and, and for young people, it's really dangerous because not only are you bringing, so, bringing like popularity and all of the insecurities that these young people right. have into their phones, you are then associating likes, hearts, followers with it. And that is a double dopamine hit. It's your survive, like you're in fight or flight at that point. You can't stop scrolling. And it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. I mean, so I explain what algorithms are. I explain how data and how this is all used and that so long as they are in the know, um, you know, knowledge is power. Then hopefully they have a shot. <laughs> wow. What yeah. made you initially write Boys Will Be Human? What was that, that initial click for you? Uh, I just... Because I was seeing the resistance to the message in grown men. And, and also in doing the personal work, you know, whether it's inner child work or going back into my past, you know, most of my traumas come from childhood. For sure. Um, there's some in adolescence and young adult that I, you know, that I have to dig into and heal. But most of it is that age. And I was just like, wow, what would my life have been like? What would my life have been like if somebody had told me all of these things? If I had read this book when I was 11 or 13? Mm. Like if these things were planted in my mind and I was able to make decisions on my own and know that I wasn't alone or maybe say to my parents, hey, can I, can I go to therapy? Can I talk to somebody? Like, or have this book be my sense of therapy. Whatever it was, like if I was able to have a book like this that answered so many questions that I had. I would have felt so much less alone. And I think I would have hurt less people in my life. And I definitely would have hurt myself less. Yeah. So that's why. Justin, how, how are you currently taking care of, of your mental health? Oh, man. Well, um, I go to therapy every week. Never miss therapy. Um, I do somatic Therapy. I do somatic work outside of my additional therapy. Um, uh, I pray and I meditate. Um, I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is I write affirmations. I write things down that either if I wake up with anxiety, I acknowledge it. And I, 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 I think about it for a second. I dig into it. I breathe into it. And then I, I write some stuff out. And then I also will write down things that I know I need to heal. Um, 
I, when I feel something, I sit with it. I am, um, if I'm angry, I ask myself why. And then I ask myself why again. Um, because the anger is never about the thing. If I react out of character to something, I try to figure out what's actually going on under the surface. Am I stressed? Am I doing too much today? Is my schedule unmanageable? What's really going on? Um, I'm always in this kind of accounting, this place of accounting, where I'm thinking about what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, but it's not obsessive, it's just running in the background. Um, I um, I try to, I, I'm starting to work out and get back into fitness a little bit, So, because I know that for me, a big key for me is movement. I feel really good when I work out, and I'm finally at a place in my life where I can work out, not because I want to just have big muscles or look yeah. a certain way with my shirt off, but I now work out because I love the way that it feels when I push my body. I love the way that my body feels when my muscles fill up with blood. love the way that my heart feels when I get it to that max heart rate for a second. Um, I love the feeling of sweating in my body. Um, it's about appreciation for the fact that I get to work out versus the old version of Justin, which was I have to work out. Mm. Because it was coming from a place of insecurity, because I wanted to look a certain way, because I wanted to present a certain way, because I wanted people to respect me a certain way. Right. You posted a photo um, recently of, of yourself. You were, I believe you were shirtless. You had the six-pack going on. You said, you mentioned something about that, that you were working out to, to look good, aesthetic purposes, yeah. and you, you, you're looking at things a little differently now. Yeah. I love that you think I was shirtless, but I wasn't. You weren't? No, I, was, I think I was, I was actually working out. I was like physically working out. See, that, that's... And, no, but it's interesting, right? But, um, but yeah, you, you know what's funny is, and I've created a little bit of a prison for myself, but I have never posted a shirtless picture of myself on social media. Wow. Like just a person, like a picture of me shirtless. Two or three times I've posted me shirtless on the show, but I've never just posted a picture got of me it, shirtless. And a part of that was because when you are so sexualized or when you are somebody who is known for looking a certain way, um, I wanted people to know that I was more than my body. Dude, that's powerful. And the problem with that, though, just speaking vulnerably, is there's been times where I've like wanted to post a picture of me shirtless, and I've stopped myself. So I created a prison for myself. Mm. You know, if you, uh, they say if you draw a line um, around uh, an army of ants, even though they can go past the line, they won't, right? And yeah. that's how powerful our mind is. And I created this prison for myself where like, there's been times where I've been having fun with my friends and I was like, oh, I just want to post that. And I didn't because I was so insecure that I was going to be seen as vain or this because my body looked a certain way, right? Um, and that's what I mean. Like extremes in all senses are not good. So I'm actually going to, I'm getting past that right now. Like I'm, I'm like, wait, I can post a shirtless picture of myself yeah. because I'm at the place now where I finally like my body. When I was looking, when I was on the show, when I was on Jane the Virgin, when I was ripped, I didn't like my body. I only saw what was wrong with it. And I was building something for other people because I didn't feel enough. So if my body looked a certain way, well, then I was enough. But my body only looked a certain way for a few weeks when I was filming. 
And then it looked good, but a little more natural. And now I'm at the place where like, I haven't worked out in, I got sick and then I was traveling. I haven't worked out in two months. Yeah. I had like a three month bender of like working out. And my workouts now were like pull-ups and stretching and like running and like yeah. very simple things. I've worked out in eight weeks. For the first time in my life, I'd look in the mirror and I'm like, I'm pretty good. I'm 38 years old. Like I like, I like the way that I look like, and I've never had that in my entire life. Wow. But that's because wow. every morning, one of the things that I write is that I love my body. I'm grateful for my body. Man. I get to pick up my children with my arms. I get to run and chase my kids with my legs. Yeah, I have a herniated disc in my lower back that drives me crazy, but I can still do all of these things. Yeah. Whereas before, it was the opposite. It was all the things that my body couldn't do for me. So it's all a mindset shift. So all of these ways are how I'm taking care of my mental health. And so much of it is just being aware. You know, that's crazy to hear you say, say that because, you know, you look at, at someone, and in this case, you know, we look at you, you project as, as, as this, <laughs> you know, heartthrob on a show and, and possibly your entire acting career, right? You, you played you know, that, that role. Shirtless man number two, and, shirtless and, and, man and, number know, five. <laughs> and, and, and you would think that, you know, this guy on screen is, is very confident and, and he's like chiseled and everything. I, I would never in my life think yeah. that, that that was was ever the case for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I would I would believe that the majority of men who are who work out and that you see in gyms and online have muscle dysmorphia. It's extremely common. Man, we've been talking about this for years on Man Enough, and now Men's Health is writing about it. Now you're starting to see it. We've allowed anorexia to become normalized in men. If a woman's anorexic. There's a problem. She's too skinny. But if a man works out for six hours a day and doesn't eat, it's okay. He just fit. That's cool. It's a double standard across the board. Wow. Man, thank you. Thank you for being so open and, and, and sharing these things. I feel like <clears throat> we, can, we can talk about this for hours and hours. Yeah, forever, yeah. Um, you know, the, the book is out now. Both books are out now. Yeah. The podcast, Man Enough. Man Enough, yes, sir. Also out. Yes. Available in all, you know, wherever you, wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> uh, and, and that's sort of a, um, an extension to everything that, that you're doing with your books and, 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 and your lifestyle, your social yeah. media content. It's just a service, man. It's just, it just we want to reach more people. We just want more people talking about this. That's really what it is. Like what you do. Thank you, brother. Before I let you go. Yes, sir. We're going to do rapid fire with Justin Baldoni. I'm so not good at rapid fire. I'm not good at... <laughs> you ready? Yes, sir. Good luck. Thank you. A million dollars or a, a million followers. A million more or a million more followers. A million dollars or a million more followers. There's no, it's, uh, I told you I'm not good at rapid, rapid fire questions because <laughs> I go yeah. so deep, man. There's like, got my asthma cough over here. <laughs> kicking it's in. not simple. I can't answer that question. It's equal. I'll take that. It's equal. Cause I would look at the impact of both. I would look at the impact of both. 
my gut is a million followers only because you never know the impact that changing one person's perspective can have on the world. I love that. Favorite food dish? Mm. My Nana's fast pasta when she was alive. What, what, was, the, what was in the it fast was a, pasta? It was, it was a, it was a fast pasta. Is a, it's just a, it's a marinara sauce, but she would make it fast as opposed to letting it slow. And there was just something about it. It took like an hour. Um, it was a very simple marinara sauce. There was just something about it that was just like, there was the fresh basil and the garlic and the smell in the house when she would cook it. it was my, you know, I'd have to time travel back. I try to recreate it, but it's never the same. Favorite song of all time? <laughs> I told you, man. These are not rapid-fire questions. Favorite song of all time? I can't, think, I can't think of one. How do you have one favorite song? How do you, ha- how do you have one favorite song? Because I'm somebody that has a different song for every feeling. So I, you, that, that, I can't answer that question. There's not one. You can't have, it's like you can't have a favorite movie. I don't believe you can have one favorite. Art is not something you can have a favorite of. So I can't give you one. I can't give you, all you need is love. There it is. All you need is love is a song that I love. Um, I mean, there's just so many. And I've had, I've had favorite songs throughout my life. There was favorite songs in high school. There was favorite songs in middle school. There was favorite songs in... Um, what, are, what are you listening to uh, in your car right now? Audiobooks. <laughs> audiobooks. Nice. Yeah. Audiobooks. Um, right now I'm listening to The Myth of Normal, which is amazing. Um, yeah. Oh, We're, The Fun Squad. My kids, my kids, uh, it's really all my kids' music. And I, as I was sitting down, I was singing like, da, da, The Fun Squad. It's like a, they're like a group of like eight and nine-year-old singers. Yeah. They're like YouTubers that my kids are, that I somehow found for my kids because I'm a dummy just plays in my sleep because they want the same song on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. Thank God they're good lyrics. Greatest rapper of all time, Justin. We're going to change this to Tupac. Slow, slow Fire with Tupac. Justin Muldoni. Tupac. Tupac. Best singer of all time. Singer? Singer of all yeah. time. You want to say... Elvis, Michael Jackson. Uh, I, again, I just I, I can't give you one. I just these are not fair questions, man. These are so these are so subjective. <laughs> slow burn. It's like the slowest rapid fire ever. It's it's a, it's a slow simmer. It's a slow simmer <laughs> type of of, of of rapid fire today. Lastly. What's a nickname of yours that no one really knows about? You know, maybe it's a sense of insecurity for me, but I've never, I haven't really been given a lot of nicknames. My dad calls me JB. People call me JB. Uh, sometimes my dad called me JL because my middle name was Lewis. In high school, they called me Boner, Bal Boner, but I write about that in the book so people know about it. Bal Boner. Bal Boner. They thought that was a creative way to insult me trying to emasculate me in some way which 
you can't do. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, I never really had nicknames growing up. What are your What are your uh, What does your wife call you? You said lastly. <laughs> uh, my wife. It's an addition me, to the same question. <laughs> my wife calls me my love. My love. We call each other my love or sweetheart. That's beautiful. My love, yeah. Well. Oh, wait. No, you're right. There is one. She calls me Elsklingen, which is, which is Swedish, which means it's like, it's like sweetheart, my love. It's, like a, it's a term of affection in Swedish. Say, say it again. Elsklingen. I say it terribly. She says it. It sounds beautiful. Elsklingen. You could never spell it if you tried. You just, you know. I was going to try to pronounce that. <laughs> nah. Don't even I'm, I'm going to call you JB. Yeah, you call me JB. <laughs> JB, thank you so much. Make some noise, everybody. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Justin Madoni, thank you. And thank you so much for watching and listening to Mondo and Friends presented by Verizon.